Again, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In a way, you could say we've been doing a series on marriage. Uh, though we have not just been thinking about marriage or just divorce or just singleness, there's obviously a truth that goes um, behind, before, um, to make these things true and useful. And so we look forward to this time uh, together in the Word. And, and just as we sang the idea of our gaze being transfixed on Jesus' face, when that, when that happens, uh, all the cares of this world fade away, right? And, and this is what Paul's calling us to in this passage. Uh, there's a lot of information about marriage, about divorce, about singleness, about uh, being a widow, uh, but what it's about is where our gaze is transfixed, even though the cares of this world uh, still encircle us while we're here. Um, something to help us think about priorities. You've heard this question before. If your house was burning down and you could only save one thing, what would you save? Uh, most of us have heard this hypothetical question before. Uh, hopefully none of us have ever been through it. Uh, but the question is designed to learn about one another's priorities. Uh, some might say uh, their computer or their phone. Some might think of a special collection that they have or, or a family heirloom. Some people might think of their Bible, maybe one that was given to them by someone special. But if people started mentioning things like a bag of chips or a jug of ice cream, just don't forget the spoon, right? That'd be a bummer. Uh, when people answer the question with things like that, it's an indication, kind of a joke, that their priorities are all out of order. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 23, verses 23 to 25, speaking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And he names them justice and mercy and faithfulness. These justice and mercy and faithfulness you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's not saying that other things are wrong or not good, but they are not the weightier matters. It says this, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This was his illustration of having your priorities out of whack. Straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. It's pretty humorous if you think about it, if you visualize it. Uh, but why had the Pharisees become this way? Why had they placed obedience to certain components of the law and left out the weightier matters? It was because they wanted to use the system, what they saw as the system that God had put in place, for their own selfish gain. It was what was in it for them. And Jesus says, verse 25 in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are, and here's Jesus saying what it is, inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They had come to read the word of God with eyes of greed and self-indulgence. And 
as a result of that mentality, gnats became camels and camels became gnats. If that makes sense. Now, Corinth, remember, Corinth was a place known for greed and self-indulgence. Problem. Uh, The Christians there had been redeemed out of that kind of lifestyle and were, by the grace of God, in the progressive process, it's helpful for us to remember that, the progressive process of putting off the old man, which would have been characterized by a what-can-I-get-out-of-this-mentality, and then putting on the new man, which realizes that all I have and all I need is Christ. And that frees me up to sacrificially love others, to take up my cross and give of myself, to love God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others as myself, as Christ first loved me. It's no more of this, what can I get out of it mindset. Instead, I'm now working towards a, what can I give for the benefit of others mindset. It's love. But, with all of the activity and all of the information, all the opinions of this world, with all of the warring desires in our own hearts, we can't just blame everybody else, there's a struggle going on, isn't there? Not just Corinth, not just those scribes and Pharisees, us, us. There's a struggle, a struggle to keep our minds fixed on the truth, a struggle to keep our priorities straight, so that we can look at our lives with clarity, with direction, with peace, and with our undivided and committed attention given to Christ. And this struggle is why Paul says he is writing this passage that we're studying today. I'll go ahead and look down to verse 35. I'm going to start there. Then we'll come back up. In the midst of all these instructions concerning marriage and divorce and singleness, uh, widowed, Widowhood. As he concludes this section of the letter, we get to see the motives and the reasoning behind all of this information. Verse 35 says this, and this is life-giving, I think. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. Realize when we read, read scripture as a what can I get out of this with a greed and the self-indulgent mindset, it becomes shackles for us. And Paul's saying, these are not shackles that I'm making for you. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the main idea of the passage. Paul declares that his heart, his motive in writing this paragraph in this letter to the church at Corinth is to help them out, to give them clarity and freedom. He is not writing these verses simply or only to tell them what to do or what not to do. That is not his primary objective. So we need to be careful that is not our primary application. What he wants is to ensure is that the church would have their priorities straight to promote good order, uh, which means that they will have an undivided devotion. Or we could say it this way, an undistracted faithfulness to Christ. Married or unmarried we must have our priorities straight, which will result in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Does that make sense? Uh, So just as a reminder for us, we must keep our priorities straight as we read through this passage today. Not reading into it, looking for what's in it for us, or some sort of selfish gain, but to think about marriage, divorce, widowhood, singleness, all of this in light of the weightier matters. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, 
our sanctification. This is God's will for us, Christians. And when we have these priorities straight, when Christ is Lord in our hearts, now we can think about things that we've seen in 1 Corinthians 7, like marriage, sex, singleness, divorce, widowhood, widowhood, or anything else for that matter. Anything else. So with all that in mind, let's go to verse 25. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, in the Greek the word is simply virgins, those who have never been married, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy, as an apostle, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trustworthy. I remember earlier in the chapter, Paul differentiated between what he was using from Jesus' own teachings in the Gospels and, and his own, something that he was writing that was new in this letter to the Corinthian church. And this would just be another instance of that. Okay, Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, that's the key phrase for this, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. It should be remembered that while the Corinthian church was worrying about whether they were to remain or become celibate or to marry or to be divorced or to remain together, among the many other things they were trying to get for themselves, for themselves, persecution was happening all over the empire, wherever the church was found. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs even tells us the account of a, the death of Erastus, who was the treasurer of the city of Corinth, uh, one who was likely led to Christ by the Apostle Paul. Now, we know of a great increase in persecution in history under the rule of Nero, and that persecution, that, that emperor's reign, was going to come within the next ten years of when this letter was written to the church. Paul himself, we know this from reading through the book of Acts, Paul himself had endured much persecution in his ministry and in his life for his faith in Christ. And Paul being a single man, it would make sense for Paul to not have wanted to take a wife and to possibly have children in that situation. It would have made sense for them. Uh, they wouldn't have to watch all what was happening to him or, or eventually be left without him to take care of them when he himself would be martyred. Something to think about. Think of Paul going to be beheaded and thinking of wife and children and family that he's leaving behind. Could God give grace for that? Absolutely he could and he has. Um, But that's not something that Paul was thinking about in that moment. And he acknowledges this. Okay. Uh, All that being said, this verse ought to humble us a great deal. It ought to humble us. The Corinthian church was writing to Paul about being able to pursue physical intimacy. That's what they're writing him about. And whether they should get married or not, whether they sure they were allowed to get divorced or not. And Paul kindly reminds them that people are being beaten, stoned, burned, even crucified for the sake of the name of Jesus and for his gospel. And Christians, today... We are still reading uh, this chapter. We can read this chapter in the Bible worried about how often we should be able to be intimate with our spouse. What are my rights? Uh, since then, since the time of the writing of this, this letter, much time has passed. Much time has passed. Uh, great worldly resources are at our disposal. Amen? And we have a great deal of freedom. In this country specifically, 
Though persecution is still happening all over the world today, just not in our backyards, it's not right in front of our faces, could we argue that taking these things for granted has tempted us to lose track of our priorities? Probably more often and more severely than we'd care to admit. Now, the other side of this present distress, the present distress that is present for us, even if we are not under persecution in this moment, at this time, in this place, is that the Great Commission is not on hiatus. It has not stopped and it has not ceased to be. God's call for us to make disciples is still on. It is still to be our mission as a church. Souls are still in need of salvation. Christ is still gathering his flock. We have been given a great work to do in making disciples. The holiness of our God still demands our wholehearted pursuit of him. To behold his glory and to be changed, progressively sanctified, conformed, becoming more like Christ. This thing, this stuff is still true for us. This thing is, this stuff is still important for us. And God can use your spouse or God can use your singleness to bring about these changes in you. Working all things together for your good, conforming you into the image of Christ, and God uses you. It's not just about everybody else's existence for your good, right? God uses you to work out these changes in others. Remember, this is the will of God for us, our sanctification. And this is a group project. All of us working together in the different relationships that we have for this work of greatest priority. So Paul continues in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? (laughs) It's a great way to say it, right? (laughs) This is my wife who I'm bound to. Paul says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Or that means to be released. So to be divorced. Don't seek that. Are you free from a wife? Free meaning you have already been released. Uh, The word here would refer to those who have already been divorced as of the writing of this letter. For these men, Paul says, do not seek a wife. With everything at stake, with our present distress, getting out of a marriage or getting into a marriage does not need to be the first thing on our minds to accomplish. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. If you remember way up in verse 1, the main argument the Corinthian believers had sent to Paul was that all Christians should remain celibate, all of them starting now, no matter what. And Paul is reiterating, he is reaffirming here, it is not sinful to marry. Yet, he says, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And the word there means pressures. They will have pressures coming in on them. And he says, I I spare you of that. I want to spare you of these pressures. And some people think that they're leaving their troubles behind when they get married. I didn't even have to say anything. (laughs) But they only find that there are new troubles and challenges ahead. Troubles that they never would have had had they remained single. Okay, so it is not sinful to get married. Amen. If you find a partner and get married, you have not sinned. And it is also not sinful 
or strange or inferior to be single. It can actually be to your advantage along with the others that you serve with. It could be to others' advantage that you remain single as well. Something that we don't often think about. So please understand that Paul is not giving any command here. As I just said, there's simply one set of blessings and struggles with marriage, and there's another set of blessings and struggles with singleness. And Paul is instructing the church that if their priorities are straight, given our calling of first priority in Christ, they might prefer the set of blessings and struggles that singleness offers, just as he did, just as Paul preferred. Verse 29, this is what I mean. He explains, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. In these verses, it's helpful to see the beginning and the end of the whole thought, which is this. The first part of the passage, the appointed time has grown very short. In the end, the present form of this world is passing away. The appointed time is very short. The present form of this world is passing away. In other words, the ways of this world are coming to an end. Time is of the essence, and eternity will be here before we know it. Therefore, we need to look at things in this life with eternity in view. And when we keep eternity in view, we remember that in eternity, we neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus said that in Matthew 22. That we were not created in order to enjoy marriage. But instead, marriage was created so that people could enjoy God. And it's only when we have this priority straight that we start seeing progress in following God's commands for us in passages like Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. When both the husband and the wife have their eyes on the same prize, in Jesus Christ, their marriage can bring glory to God. Including those instances when they both have to sacrifice some of their temporal wants for the sake of the mission we were all called to. Uh, When we keep eternity in view, it also changes the way we respond to things emotionally. As we die to ourselves and live for Christ, as we care less about the temporal things of this world and more about the glories that await us in Christ, these things that used to make us weep or mourn, the things that used to cause us great distress, they won't have that same hold on us anymore. In 1 Thessalonians 4, remember Paul reminds the church in Thessalonica, of what was to come after this life when we get to see Christ face to face. So that they would not grieve the death of loved ones as others do who have no hope. We have eternity ahead of us. And eternity that is far better than the way things are here and now. Do we believe that? And it's not just the weeping It's not just the hurting side of things, but also our rejoicing, our joy. Perhaps we would be tempted to experience great joy when we see the the demise of our enemies or when we get everything we asked for on our Christmas wish list. 
But then there's the apostles in Acts 5 who left the presence of the Sanhedrin after having been beaten, rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. That's not a normal response. But it can be normative for the Christian. I think we could say their priorities were straight. And the final example Paul gave in verses 30 and 31 was that of our dealings with the world as in our business and our financial dealings. When we keep eternity in view, it changes the way that we think about money and possessions, about leisure, things that can come become anxieties for us, especially when we're trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? Jesus taught this in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Anxieties in these things. And Paul says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious, or the word could be concerned, about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are, or his attention is, divided. And what about the ladies? Now it's their turn. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious or concerned about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So what are these worldly things, anyways? Was Paul saying that marriage is worldly and of the flesh and sinful? We already know the answer to that is no. He said that already. This use of the term worldly just means things that are necessary because of the nature of living in this world. For example, and people who are or have been married, how many conflicts have arisen because of things like these? So, for example, extended family, in-laws, uh, don't laugh too hard, anybody. We'll know, we'll know what's going on. No. Where will we be going for Christmas this year, we might ask? How about bank accounts? Or should we have separate accounts or joint accounts? Debt. Old debt that you bring in to this new union, or maybe new debt that you've built together. Uh, how about new weekly or monthly budgets as a couple? How about sticking to the budget? How about housing, where to live, renting or buying, how many rooms, decorations? One might be a hoarder, the other a minimalist. How about cleaning up the house? And what does clean mean exactly? How about cars? Who drives the nice car? Now you know we're spoiled when that's the question, right? How about toothbrushes? When you go to the store, you're going to buy the medium or the soft or the firm? Uh, Which part of the toothpaste tube should you squeeze? Should the toilet paper roll out from the top or from the bottom? That kind of depends on if you have a cat, right? I think that's how that goes. Um, Let's see, which one am I on? Making the bed. Making the bed. Tucking the sheets in at the bottom or not. Or not making the bed at all, since you're just going to mess it up again that night anyways, right? How about washing the laundry? Folding the laundry. Putting the laundry away. 
We could do the same thing with dishes, right? All three of those things. And do you just rinse them off first or do you just throw them in the dishwasher as they are? That's another question. Uh, what are we eating tonight, honey? <laughs> How often are we going out to eat? Who's taking out the trash? Who's cleaning up after the dog out in the backyard or picking up the, the kitty litter? How about extracurricular activities? Going golfing, hunting, and buying all of the equipment thereof. I really need this, honey. How, going shopping, going to the movies. How, how much are we spending on these concessions again? How about keeping track of and, and all the driving for all the kids' games? 4-H, music lessons, whatever it is we all got our kids into, right? That was a list of 25 worldly things, and I didn't even have to Google any of that. And we could all think of many more, couldn't we? It's pretty amazing. A marriage is one of the only things in this world that you need counseling for before you even start. But we need premarital counseling, don't we? And I'll just say this to you as I was thinking about that. If you would like to do postmarital counseling, buy this book for you and your spouse. Okay? Buy it together. You know, do this together. This is called Tying the Knot by Rob Green. And if you get married in this church and I am doing your wedding, guess what we're doing first? Okay? And it will be good and you will be thankful. Okay? That's a fantastic resource, Tying the Knot by Rob Green. And it's good to do after you get married as much as before. Okay? So all this to say, it is good for a married couple to work all of these things out. All that kind of stuff. And to seek to love one another in the big stuff and in the little stuff. And there were, in that list, there was some big stuff and little stuff, right? It's right and good and loving. It honors the Lord when we seek to understand and support one another in our marriages throughout life. Even when that means turning the roll of toilet paper what you think is the wrong way, or squeezing the tube of toothpaste up from the bottom so your spouse doesn't have to be concerned that any of it's wasted. And, and, single people don't have to worry about that stuff. They just don't. And some of them want to. They want to go through all of those things with the spouse, and that's okay. It's understandable, right? But they don't have to. And they can save their attention and all of those brain cells for other things, focusing their attention more easily on the things of the Lord, which is something God has called all of us to do. Paul is not saying here single people are to be more spiritual than married people. We are all called to this. Okay, we're all called to this. We see this in verse 35. That was the key verse in this passage. I say this on your behalf, for your behalf, not to lay any restraint upon you. I'm not telling you that you have to get married or that you have to be single, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Married or single, have your priorities straight. As two have become one, or as a single person, may your devotion be undivided. Now in verse 36, Paul is proactively in these verses going to answer the question, but what if you're already engaged, but not married yet? Should I remain single if I'm engaged to be married? And he answers this, verse 36, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, okay, so if a man and woman are engaged, they're not married, they have not yet come together physically, and it says, if his passions are strong, and the wording here in the Greek is literally, to be past the high point. Okay, we think when we're like annoyed, we think, I've had it up to here. It's not like an annoyed kind, 
but it's above up to here, right? To be passed to the high point is the figure of speech he's using. And then he says, and it has to be. So when your passions are strong, when you feel like you are past the tipping point, and when in your desire for your bride-to-be, you just can't wait any longer, Paul says, get married, get married. Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Again, it is good to be married. It is not sinful to be married. But, verse 37, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed. Meaning, if the guy can keep himself under control and not go forward with the marriage, Paul says he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. What did that just say? This is a little countercultural, isn't it? And I'm going to read it right out of the verse again, not my own words. He who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. In case we haven't heard clearly enough from the earlier verses in this chapter yet, Paul is saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the word of God, it is better to be single. So, Are you an adult who has never married? Take advantage of your freedom and use your time and energy to serve the Lord. Are you an adult who has experienced divorce and is not remarried? Even though you didn't ask for it, you can take advantage of this freedom and use your time and energy to serve the Lord. Are you uh, widowed? You can now take advantage of this freedom and use your time and energy to serve the Lord. Marriage is good. Singleness is better. Paul has given reasons for this throughout the passage today. He mentioned the present distress the church is under, worldly pressures, troubles that can distract us, uh, the shortness of time we have left in this life in light of eternity. And now he gives one more reason why singleness is a good thing in verse 39. And it's this, marriage is for life. That's why. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. The man must be a follower of Christ. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So yes, we read that right. Paul is saying it's better to stay single because if you get married, you're supposed to be married to that person until death do you part. And that could be a long time. That's kind of silly for us to think about. But that is what he just said. Can you imagine a young man coming to ask a father for his daughter's hand in marriage, and the father says, young man, are you sure? Are you sure you want to marry my daughter? You're both pretty young. Are you sure you want to be married to somebody for that long? That might be a little strange. might take that young man by surprise to hear something like that from that man. And Paul also gives more proactive instruction for the widows of the church here. He's saying, if your spouse dies and you want to get married again, you're free to do so, even though it would be better to be single than to be married again. But if you do get married again, your spouse must 
also be a follower of Christ. Why? And really, this goes for all marriages. Why must a Christian marry another Christian? And to think of a prior part of this passage, we could say, because Christians don't weep about the same things the world weeps about. Because Christians rejoice at things the world doesn't rejoice over. Because Christians spend their money like people whose treasures are in heaven and not here on this earth. Christians have a different priority and therefore have different goals for marriage than the world's goals. So if a widow is going to have a new husband or any Christian is going to have a spouse, they need to be on the same page. They'd better be on the same page. And Christ said, take my yoke upon you. And if the couple is not wearing the same yoke, there are going to be issues. They must have the same eternally minded, Christ-centered, gospel-centered priorities or their marriage is going to have great struggle. Does that make sense? So, some final thoughts. Verse 37 reminded us, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control. This is a great challenge to our men and to our women. We can be firmly established in our hearts. Think about knowing the scripture, knowing what you believe, and therefore being firmly rooted in your faith. This results in, think about the world's communication to us. What is being preached to us every time we turn around, whether it be on a TV screen or in a newspaper or on the internet or in social media or on the billboard or at our schools, at our workplaces, in our conversations, we must be firmly rooted in our faith, not being tossed about by every wave of doctrine. And what people are preaching to us is doctrine. It's just false doctrine. So we must be firmly rooted and firmly established. The world's going to tell us all kinds of different plans. Okay? Think about this. We've talked about singleness and marriage much in the last couple of weeks. But realize when we talk about singleness, just to be clear, we mean that a young man, a young woman, or depending on how old they are, it could be a middle-aged man, a middle-aged woman, it could be um, a person is single up until their 60s and 70s and gets married in the, for the first time then. In God's plan, marriage comes together in the physical union of the man and the woman, coming, becoming one flesh. What does our culture teach on that today? Sex is very cheap. And it has nothing to do with even friendship at this point in many people's minds. Let's be firmly rooted in our faith, young people. That is a false doctrine, and it's destructive. Okay, so singleness does not mean, if we think, oh, singleness is better, we don't mean just not to have the the restrictions of marriage tying you down, go out there and enjoy what the world has to offer. No, 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 no. Not that picture of singleness. This is the person that Christ said is able to remain celibate by choice for the purpose of the kingdom of God that kind of singleness. That's what's better than marriage for the kingdom and for service, okay? Does that make sense? And, and overall, this message is not about singleness good, marriage bad. 
Not what we said today. Not what Paul said. Singleness, good. Marriage, good. Okay? If anything, marriage, good. Singleness, better. Right? But the main message is this. Focused devotion to Christ, good. Being distracted from Christ, not good. That's the main message. And singleness will be the best way to achieve this goal for some people. Marriage will be the best way to achieve this goal for others, especially those of you who are presently married. That's an obvious thing, right? Marriage will be the best way to achieve that. But what should we be looking for in a spouse? How do I know I'm being a good spouse? We think about this. Will this person and will I be encouraged by one another to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? That's what our marriages ought to result in. That's a good marriage. Will this potential marriage, if I'm thinking of a person, if I'm, I'm looking forward to hoping to be married to somebody, will this marriage make us both more like Jesus or will this potential marriage distract us, either one of us, from following Christ? So if you are a single Christian here today, if you can remain single, that's great. Do that. Serve Christ in your singleness. Thank you for your service. And if you want to be married, that's great. Marry someone who is going to sharpen you for the cause of Christ. And be a spouse who's going to sharpen your spouse for the cause of Christ. So that when the two become one together, they become a couple who is even greater, in a greater potential, going to be champions for Christ together. Make sense? It's not good, bad. It's not good, bad in marriage and singleness. Focused devotion to Christ is what we're after. That's what honors him. Okay, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and your clarity that you give to us. God, we thank you that in thinking through these things, again, this is not a set of uh, shackles. This is not just law that we should look at and find out, what can I do? What can I not do? Um, How am I being obedient? How am I being disobedient? How should other people treat me? What can I get away with? But Lord, what you've called us to is love. We thank you that you loved us even while we were yet sinners. Not because you thought we were going to be awesome, not because we proved ourselves to you first, but while we were yet sinners, you showed your love to us and gave us Christ. That Christ gave himself sacrificially in a display that Ephesians 5 in your word tells us is a picture of the husband and the wife, that he gave himself sacrificially to purchase us, to redeem us from our sin, that we could be forgiven. God, I pray that we would, in our marriages, give ourselves sacrificially one to another for the cause of Christ, that we would love one another in a way that, that honors you, that encourages Uh, our faith, and that as the couples of our church love each other, Lord, we thank you for the effect that will have on all of us as a community of believers. Lord, we thank you for singleness. We thank you that uh, you have given this gift also to the church. We thank you for the freedom that that allows people to have uh, to devote uh, potentially more easily 
their devotion and their attention to the things of of, uh, your work, your kingdom. And pray, Lord, that we as a church would value that most. Lord, may, may we, in humility and thankfulness for the cross of Christ and thankfulness for our standing, uh, being counted as justified before you, being given the righteousness of Christ, knowing of your promise to conform us to the image of your Son, knowing of the glory that awaits for us in eternity, that whether we are married or single, God, may you please have our undivided devotion. And Lord, we thank you that Christ said that when we take that yoke upon us, when we learn from him that the yoke is easy, the burden is light, may we rest in the finished work of Christ and the cross for us in our place and live in joy as we follow hard after you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.